welcome to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Curran, and I'm joined by my old friends Heidi White and Tim McIntosh. Heidi, Tim, welcome back to the show. How's it going? Thanks, David. I'm so excited to do Anna Green Gables. I'm like twitching. <laughs> you're you're going to start speaking in long, uh, eloquent sentences with big words because you don't know anything else. Exactly. You don't have any other options. Tim, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing just great, David. Did you just get finished doing hot yoga or something? What have you been up to? No, as a matter of fact, I was writing. Uh, I was writing this morning. I wrote a speech for a friend of mine, Joe Biden. For Joe Biden, <laughs> he, he, said, he really yeah. needs him to write his speeches. Yeah, <laughs> that's not a political statement. It's just a, like a competency statement. <laughs> I, you know what? I'm gonna be. <laughs> I'm not going there. Wait, I'm going there. I'm going there. I haven't heard many of Joe Biden's speeches. Oh. Is he a lackluster? He's not known for. Speech of fire? Okay. Like he would not be accused of being a sophist. Okay. <laughs> that's a, so that's an indirect that's one compliment. Way yeah. Yeah. I had to make up for that. You guys were all being really careful. And I just went in there and said he was bad at speech making. So anyway, Tim, if you were to write his speeches, <laughs> It, they would they would be better. So, <laughs> I know what you're doing is throwing his speechwriters under the bus, yes. not him so much. So, well, delivery too. So, hey, can I can I say something? Um, a friend of mine from Eugene. So, I, you guys know that I live in Seattle now. A friend of mine from Eugene, Amy Eisner Gibson, and her husband were driving down the road the other day, and they were like, "Let's listen to a literature podcast," and they found us. And they started listening and they said, is that Tim that we're listening to? <laughs> and they posted it on Facebook. What gave it away when we said Tim McIntosh? Yeah, right, the right. Um, I saw that. So it, these are kind friends of, of yours that these you know outside the podcast. And then they stumbled upon it without knowing that you were on it. Completely independently. Oh, that's cool. I love that. I know. What, what are their names? Uh, Amy Eisner Gibson. Amy Eisner. Well, welcome, yeah. Amy and company. Thank yeah. you yeah, for I mean, joining honestly, us. Honestly, it seems to me like maybe you're just not that close with I Tim. I mean, I so. didn't want to say it. <laughs> <laughs> How good of a friend can you be with Tim? Although maybe Tim doesn't share things. Tim, are you an undersharer? Matthew Cutler. I, I probably am an undersharer. <laughs> I am an undersharer. Yeah, well, thanks for promoting the show with all your friends, man. <laughs> no, no. I, I mean, like... Well, I guess I could probably do a better job. I do Instagram <laughs> posts, et cetera, et cetera. Hey, can I, while we're talking about me, can I just yeah. talk about what I've been doing this week? Yes. Um, yeah, I think we were already doing that. So go ahead. <laughs> I am in Colorado because, hello, Heidi. Hi. I'm waving. Yeah, I'm waving. I'm a little mad, but it's okay. <laughs> never comes I down have to been see working me. with the Paideia classical community, the Paideia school in Fort Collins because they wanted to put on a Shakespeare showcase for their students. So we got about 15 students from the Paideia school ranging in age from middle school to a senior in high school. And about mm, six weeks ago, I got online with all of them at the place where they were going to perform this beautiful little church in Fort Collins. And I kind of told them, hey, this is what it takes to be an actor. And these are the kind of things that I want you to do when you're up on stage. I want you to, you know, carry your breath. I want you to carry the words. 
with great volume to the back of the auditorium, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, these students started working and most of them had zero acting experience. There was a handful that had some acting experience, but basically they were going from zero to Shakespeare in six weeks. And we performed on Saturday night. I cannot tell you how excited I was. I've been in like some pretty big productions, like some pretty big theater productions. This I think might be the most satisfying thing I have ever done in theater because there were kids that like, when they started doing this, they were, I mean, like terrified. They're going to do Shakespeare. And they were terrified and they were talking in little quiet voices and they had quiet gestures and they had muted movements. And then they got up on Saturday night. You know, we worked hard like the last, the week that I was in town and they got up on Saturday night and they blew everybody away. They blew everybody away. And it was so great, especially to see like some of the, some of the young students that were really shy at the beginning like they marched out of that performance with their faces just beaming. They had accomplished something that was just remarkable, just remarkable. And it was another one of those instances where I thought, this is what classical education is all about. Because not only were they well-versed in reading and understanding Shakespeare, but they also read Shakespeare aloud as part of their curriculum. They read speeches aloud as part of their curriculum. And so all of this kind of subterranean training that they had done just, just like helped them on the stage. They did a magnificent thing. Amen. So you're, so you're, so you're, uh, do you want to shout out any names of these students? Or, I, you know, I do, but you know, I don't know whether is I, there one in particular who was really just better than everyone else <laughs> that you could particularly, you know, or maybe there was one who wasn't so good that you'd like to just leave out in the list of names or something. I'm gonna say <laughs> that's kind of classical, actually. They used to do. I'm, that. I'm gonna say Rourke. Um, I'm gonna say Rourke. <laughs> Rourke. Yeah, you're just wanna, you just want to say the name Rourke and not I say which say of those the questions you're answering. He, I think his. Mom might listen to the show. Sam, if you listen, if you're listening to the show, um, she will know who it is, who I'm, she'll, she'll know it's her son. She'll know who her son is? Yeah. <laughs> Sam will know who her son is. Okay. It's Sam okay. Alvarado. It's Rourke Alvarado. I <laughs> okay. was just, All right. yeah. I'm thinking of Rourke. He was something else. He did to be or not to be. And it was a triumph. All right. Nice. Well, Speaking of triumphs, we are here to discuss Anne of Green Gables, and we should probably get to that as soon as possible here. Uh, before we do that, I do want to let people know about how they can get in touch and join the conversation. Of course, on Instagram, we are at Close Reads Pods. On email, it's Close Reads Podcasts at gmail.com. And you can also subscribe to the newsletter that's Close Reads, uh, closereads.substack.com. And this week, uh, I believe this week, we are going to be releasing another episode of our common punishment conversations, or if not this week soon, we, I guess we haven't talked about when to do that next. <laughs> uh, that's coming soon. So if you want to get access to those, you can go to uh, patreon.com slash close reads for all that bonus content, as well as Heidi, take it away. What? Some... Oh, sweet show swag. There you go. 
Perfect. Well done. Thanks. Look at that. And I didn't even tell you it was coming. You just had to there's just had to roll <laughs> off your tongue. I stumbled there a bit. I said, "What?" <laughs> but I got well, it. When it. I got when there. It, yeah, when it when it came down to it, you 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 uh, performed well. Okay. <laughs> We are here to discuss Anne of Green Gables, uh, Lucy Maud Montgomery's classic novel. This is a, uh, and it's a little bit more earnest than old Holden Caulfield from our last book. So I imagine we're going to be getting some, uh, some people who took the, uh, the adventures of Holden Caulfield off for the last few weeks, uh, which I think is the alternate name for the, for the book. Uh, <laughs> and we're going to talk about uh, the adventures of Anne, Anne of Green Gables. Um, but before we do that, before we dive into uh, getting a little bit of background from each of you on your experiences with this book, I have a very important, very crucial question that I need to get you each to answer. Tim, are you ready for this? Because I need you to answer it first. I'm ready, David. Okay. I need a drum roll though. You want to do? You want me to do it, or you want Heidi to do it? I don't know how to you do, do a drum roll. On You're the our drum roller. Okay. You're our drummer roller. Drum roller. Yeah, Go ahead. I am. I'm ready. <laughs> okay, Tim. Yeah. Which would you rather be if you had the choice? Divinely beautiful, dazzlingly, dazzlingly clever, or angelically good? Oh, angelically good. That came out way too fast. Lies. I just feel like it sounds. I feel like it's fake. I feel like you're just. No, I mean, you just feel like you should say that. I definitely feel like I should say that, and I think <laughs> my heart also wants to say that. Are you possibly underrating being divinely beautiful? Okay, being divinely beautiful. <laughs> let's be real here. It gets you all sorts of things that you want, and does it do anybody any bit of good? I guess it depends on what we mean by divinely beautiful, right? Heidi, which would you rather be? Divinely beautiful, dazzlingly, dazzlingly clever, or angelically good? I would 100,000% rather be divinely beautiful. <laughs> what? Oh, Go yeah. on. Easy. Easy. I'm like Anne. I'm like extremely vain. Remember when Gilbert says being smart is better than being pretty? And she's like, no, that's me. <laughs> 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 Dazzlingly beautiful, hundred percent. Um, how about you, David? Divinely, you just combined dazzlingly. I actually think this is. I brought this up because I, I actually really like what Montgomery does here because she makes her say divinely beautiful, dazzling, dazzlingly clever, or angelically good. And the adjectives that you choose there could actually be. You just said dazzling, dazzlingly beautiful. Oh. This is the did. last time when you just said it. And it strikes me that that actually probably is the adjective more often used mm. with beauty as opposed to divinely, because maybe divinely might go with good and dazzlingly would go with beautiful. And then, in, you know, there's all kinds of different ways, permutations right. of those six words. So I was, I was struck by this and felt like we could have it. We, we probably should start the book by answering this question. What a great question. How are you going to answer mm -hmm. it? Uh, Mr. Kern. Well, can I just say what Matthew says? No. Well, no, I, I don't know exactly. Oh, well. Dave, that's not an answer. <laughs> I do feel like you're dodging a little but, bit. Yeah. But doesn't Anne also say, I can never decide. If you pick dazzlingly clever, then all three will be represented in our little crew. That's true. But, does that make us like, what is that? What is like that? Like a little gang, probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> the try the triumvirate, yeah. Tim's Tim's good. You're beautiful, and I'm clever. Is that the idea? <laughs> yeah. Which I one of us like is it? Caesar? Which one of us is going to be Caesar and kind of like knock the other two out? And the listeners should post which one out. they think each of us is. <laughs> <laughs> 
the right know. answer for I me don't know. divinely beautiful. So. <laughs> I like that we've kind of like they know it. They're going to tell us what the, what we want to hear. Well, yeah, yeah I know it. Yeah, yeah. Be beautiful, right? Heidi. <laughs> you are dazzlingly beautiful, David. You are indecisive. Divinely. Right. <laughs> <laughs> what, did he, what did you say? Indecisive. You are indecisive. I am indecisive. Interesting. Um, well, okay. So yeah, it's Anne of Green Gables. Um, uh, Tim, what's your um, experience with this book? Have you, first of all, have you read it before? I've never read this book before. My entire experience, another shout out to my sister, Carissa. What's up? It's my, <laughs> all of my experience is through Carissa when she was probably middle school. I'm going to guess sixth grade. And she went through, to my recollection, an Anne of Green Gables phase. And I remember it being <laughs> on the VCR, young people. This is called a video cassette with um, actual tape material instead of streaming devices. I remember, <laughs> I'm pretty sure she had. Anne you might of Green be confused Gables. about our demographic to listen to this. Podcast. Yeah, I think I probably am. Yeah. Um, she listened to Anne of Green, watched Anne of Green Gables quite often. And I would walk into the room and see that Anne of Green Gables was on and I would spin on my heel and walk out to something I thought was more constructive. So I have <laughs> zero, zero knowledge about Anne of Green Gables that is firsthand. It's all secondhand from like my middle school sister and other people who love Anne, love uh -huh. this, like this book and the movies also like the miniseries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Heidi, what about you? What's your? How, this is the first, first time, how many time I've ever read Anne of Green Gables. <laughs> um, that's a lie. I have. I was trying to think <laughs> if I could even ballpark how many times I've read this novel. I think I believed you for like a half a second. Yeah. Um, I. Is it, okay, I think I've more than ten. Read it. I I think it's around a hundred times. Wait, no, what? I really. Wait. Yes, Wait. I think I've read this book about a hundred times. I so the first time I read this book, I was nine. I think I was nine. <laughs> my, this is incredible. My, this is incredible. So this is by far like the most formative book of my entire life. You guys can do all of your analyzing of Heidi White instead of flip flopping it around. On is that this why there's series. an E in Heidi? Heidi with an E. I did tell people for a while that my name was Mary Constance based on Anne Green Gables <laughs> because she just wanted to be Cordelia. And um, yeah. so, and I was almost named Mary Constance and I liked it. And so I just like told people for a while that that was my name because Anne did it. So I read this book when I was nine. My grandfather had just died and um, I was really lonely. I was actually, I was a really lonely child. And like very much a hurting child. And my mom handed me this book or maybe bought it for me for Christmas or something. And I wasn't allowed to watch TV. So I read it and I was absolutely, I like fell in love with this novel and with this girl. And it was a little bit, I don't think it was unhealthy, but I like wanted to be in this book and it's because for a couple of reasons, one, she was also a very lonely and neglected child and, but she loved goodness. And I really wanted that. 
Like I, I, I was kind of on a path down. I was on a bit of a downward path and I don't know what would have happened. I, this isn't hyperbole. I actually really believe that this novel series like saved my soul mm. because through Anne, I fell in love with goodness and nature and relationships and people and believed through Anne that out of loneliness and neglect could come new life and that you could still be good, be angelically good, even if you're not divinely beautiful. Uh, (laughs) um, I just loved this series and I read it. I think I read it like three times within the first month I had it. And I read the Mm. whole entire series and I wrote, this is how I started writing as well. I wrote follow-up books. I was so sad when the series was over. I wrote like a net several other stories in the series and everything I know from world war about world war one comes from the last book in the series called Rilla of Ingleside, which is about Anne's daughter going through world war one. And, um, and then when I had children, I, there's only two series of books that I forced my children to read. And one of them is Anne Green Gables, although I didn't make Jack read the whole series. Um, and, and the Harry Potter series. Hmm. So this is a big deal to be doing this, especially since, you know, we do only one children's book a year. Um, so I, I just loved, and I still read it as an adult. I read it last year. I read so the you'd whole have series to get last to 100 year. times. <laughs> yeah. And Lucy so, has them on Audible and she listens to them on repeat. So we always have hmm. Anne Green Gables or Harry Potter on repeat in the house. And Did, so that's another way of kind of by osmosis gotten this. What, how does Jack feel about them? He's, he's he 13, the, right? He's 13. He listened to the book. Um, I have this whole theory about how kids should, we should use car time to get good books in them because they can't, they literally cannot tune it out if they're in the car. <laughs> Even if they right. cover their ears, they still hear it. Yeah. Uh, so I, he <laughs> listened to this book at, I think he was eight. Okay. And he would probably say now, I haven't asked him about it for a while. He would say, I thought it was fine. I didn't love it, but I liked it fine. Yeah. But I remember at the time he would, he wanted to hear more. Yeah. 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 But you like this book, right, David? Yeah. Okay. So <clears throat> I couldn't tell you the last time I read it. I was talking to Bethany last night about it. And I think that I have probably never read it cover to cover to myself. Mm-hmm. I read it like my dad and mom read it to us when we were kids. I remember vividly being at our table after dinner and my dad reading this book to us. But before I ever read it or had it rather had it read to us, we watched the 80s series. I've probably seen the series eight or 10 times in my life. Right. When I was like 11, I had like a crush on Megan Fellows or whatever, Follows, whatever her name was, the mm-hmm. actress that played She's Anne. a good Anne. She's good. Yeah. So I, and, and that's a very like, there's a lot of the language in the book, in that series, and a lot of the dialogue in particular. Um, so I've got like very distinct memories of scenes from that in my that in my memory, and then but it's been since I was a kid since I've read it. You know, like I was probably twelve the last mm-hmm. time I probably heard my parents reading it to us somewhere in that range. So it's it's been since then that I have read it, and so you know it's fun to fun to go back to it. Although since then I've seen the the series a couple of times, not a hundred times though. Right. Fair enough. Um, so Heidi. Yes. I, I'm sorry. I just got to, I just got to know more. I got to know more. Did you, so all the things that you were kind of compelled by in this book was the character of Anne 
the gateway in or was it kind of like the overall story that brought you into this to like loving the things that you said that you loved? Oh, I really like that question a lot, Tim, because in some ways that (laughs) it connects with having just done Catcher in the Rye, in which it's kind of a similar question for a very different reason. (laughs) A lot of people don't love this story, but they have a great love for Holden um, for all the reasons that we discussed. And I think that it is true. It is Anne herself. Mm -hmm. Um, that, I mean, the story's good. It, it's, it is a children's book and it has a very childlike story. And there's a lot in it that in real life likely wouldn't have taken place. Like, um, I get, it would be very difficult for a child to go through what Anne did and still maintain her innocence and vibrancy and engagement. Yeah. But of course, at nine years old, I didn't know anything about trauma theory. So I like believed that she had, I believed her. I took it at face this value. This is the sort of essential fact of almost all children's literature. Like yes. Secret Garden, for example, probably David doesn't Copperfield. really work the way like that's, you know. Right. Also, in case you weren't didn't know, there really aren't wardrobes that take you into other worlds and wait, fawns don't talk and fairy tales are rare they're rarely people who lead you through a paths of candy to their home and then bake you in their oven. So, you know, <laughs> as far as I know, that those are like rare in, rare occurrences. Rare in this. occurrences, yeah. yes. Yeah. Yes. The neglected orphans do not have they are they are not always who Anne <laughs> who Anne is, but that was it was it it's was called her. suspension of disbelief. Exactly. <laughs> and she's a lot she I don't know if I am like Anne or if she is like me. Like I I don't know how much of my kinship with her was because I was the lonely child that latched onto her and she formed me, or if I recognized myself in her. But that I still don't know fully the answer to that, but I do know that without Anne, like this is, this is one of those rare, truly formative stories in a human life in which there is no Heidi White of today without Anne Shirley of me at nine years old. Mm. And that it's, it was, so powerful, such a powerful force in my life. And I was having a, it was interesting. I just, um, we just did the Kindred West conference this last weekend in Colorado Springs. And I talked some about it, uh, in my talk about the influence of Anne, when I talked about the healing hope of stories and, um, a mom came up to me after my talk and, and told me about her daughter, who's 11. I think she said, that she's 11 and is reading Anne for the first time and has had a very similar response to the book that I had. Like she described mm-hmm. a lot of the same response. And, and it, this little girl is adopted that she's an adopted child. Um, and she grew up in an orphanage overseas and was brought into this family several years ago. And now she's reading Anne for the first time and is having the same response I had. And this and she even told her mom, mm. I want to, I want to have something along the lines of, I want to be good like her. I didn't know you could with all this pain in your background, like you could have this kind of innocence, delight, and wonder 
uh, in a posture towards the world. Um, and I remember that. I remember that very response to this book, like, oh, you don't have to have a good life to be good. And that was news to me. So anyway, mm. this was super powerful to me. As an adult, I look at it through different eyes, but there's still, I still can't quite take that out of it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So when I yeah. read it, I still read it like a child. Mm. Tim. That's amazing. I'm just, I'm just thinking about like, kind of like, oh yeah, this is why we read. This is why we mm-hmm. read books. This is why we do close reads. Yeah. Right. Well, and I believe that like that, this to me, I was talking to my husband about this. I'm going to stop talking in a minute because I'm dominating. <laughs> don't, but don't. I, I was telling Scott, like, I don't just believe that stories are formative. Like, I know that they are. This is, mm-hmm. this is not just, I like to read. And so I'm making up all these moral reasons why it's good to read. Like, I know this, this is my story. And this, like, it was this particular, like that, we haven't gotten to this part yet, but there's a scene when Anne sees a picture of Jesus and pictures herself as being a little girl approaching Jesus. And and in Montgomery's work, I read everything that she's ever written, of course. And that's a very big theme for her that that the Sunday school moralistic Jesus is not the is not that there's a better kind of a better spirituality to offer to children and um than just the moralistic one. And that and is was there the something first about I like met Jesus through Anne's eyes. Mm. It's like I remember reading that and thinking, oh. Like it isn't just a set of rules. So there's so many things about it that, um, and I know she was part of the transcendentalists and I like, there's, there's a lot of things about her life that at the time I didn't know. And of course, didn't connect to just this transcendent experience I was having reading the book. Mm -hmm. Kim, go ahead. What were you going to say? We haven't gotten there yet. So if this is a spoiler, Heidi, feel free to skip the question. But is there something about Anne's approach she to Jesus? She does not successfully rob the bank, no. <laughs> <laughs> is there something about his, her approach that, that is not Sunday school-ish or kind of rules-based? Um, yes, it, yes, definitely. She sees faith through the same eyes that she sees nature. Like she has a very sacramental worldview. I don't know if that was part of Lucy Maud Montgomery's intent, but, and I'm sure we'll talk about it throughout this podcast, but she, she has the same delight in the faith that she has in the cherry tree outside of her window. That's, and, and that was very formative to me and I think can be to children. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I'm even more excited to read this book now. Well, okay. So let's, let's turn to you then. This is your first time reading it and your, your youthful, your youthful, uh, access to it was, was a little bit dismissive. It sounds like you were, uh, you know, you, you weren't so, in, you weren't, you didn't give it a chance. It doesn't sound like. Yeah, I was just a bro. I mean, I was just, you know, I wanted to play basketball and I wanted to, you know, be outside running around with my guys, riding my BMX bike, which are all great things. I just didn't, 
I didn't you, see the point. One, so hold one of on. our, you were not riding your BMX bikes with Ann tossed in your backpack or your back pocket and then pulling off under the tree and sitting down with the bros and, and uh, sipping your root beer while you read the book together. Wow, I mean, you really no. would have been the perfect man at that point. <laughs> this was not yeah. 10 year old. Tim. Definitely wasn't. Definitely wasn't. I don't okay, know that we read. Right. I remember reading like, the Led Zeppelin unauthorized biography when I was in ninth grade or something like that. That's about as deep as I got. You read the liner notes to your favorite album. Yeah, right, right. The Nirvana lyrics. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, right. The back of that Atlanta Braves baseball card. That was my in-depth reading. That was my dissertation work. I did have hundreds (laughs) of those myself. So, you know, I'm not judging you when I make that statement. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so what's your what's your impression been like you read we read six chapters for today what where did you uh how, how uh, first impressions i guess is what i'm thinking but i like i guess i'm i'm wondering if um were you like eh, that was nice and i'm glad we're talking about this or were you like maybe you thought well, this is going to be a slog to figure out what to talk about over the next uh, six weeks <laughs> no, if Heidi doesn't i come honestly on the show? thought I thought, oh my gosh, Anna's so terrific. Yeah. Anna's just so great. She it's like everything is in black and white until she shows up and then there's green and red and blue on the stage. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's my impression. She just is she's like she's a force of nature, but it's not a destructive force of nature. It's like it's like sunshine is coming into the country. Everything's going to mm. like, it just feels like everything can blossom, but she also feels um, like she's not without her potential foibles. Yeah. Yeah. She's going to, she you a, can tell she's she going to bring a little bit of chaos with her. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, you know, which go, go all go for on. it. That's going to, I, my suspicion, I'm just going to sound, I'm just committing to sound like the dope on these podcasts because you guys know this book so well. I'm just really committed to sounding like I don't know what I, I don't know what I'm talking about because obviously I don't. I remember Christine Perrin before one of the poetry panels, we were about to go up there and we were doing um, that Elizabeth Bishop poem, One Art. Yeah. And I had read it in preparation for the poetry panel many, many times, but I deliberately did no um, literary, you know, criticism. I didn't try to go to external sources to understand the poem deliberately because I wanted to be the person who didn't really understand it that well. And before we walked up there, Christine Perrin said, are you going to do your dumb blonde thing? And I was like, (laughs) Yeah, but you get like, and it won't be a role. I'm gonna be that person, and that's who I'm gonna be on this podcast. Also, I just am not gonna know what's going on. I'm gonna be a, a naive first reader. <laughs> you're gonna be Matthew. That's what you're saying. I'm gonna be who? Matthew, Matt? Matthew Cuthbert. Oh, 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 yeah, that's right. You know, one thing. Yeah, I love that you were talking about. Although maybe that's not giving him enough credit, but um. I love what you were saying about how she brings the color with her because I kept thinking about um, the way she, Matthew changes or throughout the course of his conversation with her to the point that even when he gets home or he's doing all kinds of things that his own sister doesn't recognize, like, <laughs> excuse me, like smoking and the looks he's, he's giving and stuff like that. And there's this moment when 
she it's right actually it's actually right before that line that i asked you guys about the the divinely beautiful dazzlingly clever angelically good line um on my edition it's on 24 i don't it's on chapter wow i was in the wrong part of the chapter to forget this two um but she says, she's talking about the whole alabaster brow thing. And he, he says, what is an alabaster brow? I could never find out. Can you tell me? And then it says, well, now I'm afraid I can't, said Matthew, who was getting a little dizzy. He felt as he had once felt in his rash youth when another boy had enticed him on the merry-go-round at a picnic. <laughs> and I love how she brings in this, you know, every time she opens her mouth, she's bringing, she brings in this, as you put it, this chaos, but also a new way of looking at the world. Right. And, and like asking questions that he's never considered before. Um, you know, she asks him what color is my hair? And he's, it says he was not used to deciding on the tints of ladies tresses, but in this case, there couldn't (laughs) be much doubt. So just, she brings this new way of looking at the world and it's such a powerful, all encompassing, sort of magic imbued way of looking at things that you can't help but change the way you look at the world when you come across her. Now, Rachel is going to be a particular uh, project for Anne, but um, you know, that's, I think that's one of the things that makes the book magical as you're saying is because these characters who in any other story would be the sort of, you know, uh, cynical older people in like a Dickens story this is so earnest and hopeful because her magic is actually her magical point of view is actually sort of transformative. Whereas in a Dickens book, the perspective of someone like Oliver Twist or David Copperfield, it doesn't have that sort of magical quality about it. I think that's why this story sometimes feels like a fairy tale and maybe feels unrealistic to your point, Heidi, but it's just like that suspension of disbelief is, is, you know, as readers, if we can manage to suspend our disbelief, it can be a powerful thing because it can help us, see the world differently as well you know as as you were describing in your own perspective go ahead you were going to say something though you know this is an interesting comparison do you think how do i ask this oliver twist or david copperfield they have this perspective it's probably a little bit like Anne, innocent it's probably a little bit um it's full of magical thinking. Why are they unable to transform their surroundings, but Anne is? We're going to have to think about that when we read some Dickens after we finish Crime and Punishment and maybe think oh, back right. to Anne. That's a good question. I mean, I think um, Maud Montgomery's um world is it, it it is it allows for it like it it's set it's set up for the for that magic to happen and whereas dickens is so um he's so caught up even in a sense even in a christmas carol in the realism of the moment or in portraying the moment with realism that it might diminish the world that he's trying to create for that sort of perspective to, to have this sort of effect. I think that's actually why it's important that this story take place on, on Prince Edward Island. Like it's sort of set apart from the mainland. It's, it is a sort of magical place. Like if you just throw it in the middle of Ontario where I was born, I don't know if it ha- can have the same effect. I don't, I don't know if it could, that suspension of disbelief would be as easy to set a, to, to buy into if that makes mm. sense. 
because I mean, Dickens is also, he's trying to make a point, you know, he's trying to, he's got a goal in, in his story and he's trying to write something for the common man, so to speak. I mean, that's an oversimplification, but to, to let that magic, the magical, the magic in that, in a youthful perspective, truly change the place, I think would diminish what he was after in his stories, which is, I think, not true here. Right. I think that you're right about the realism. Um, and I, I also think to add to that, that with the David Copperfield and Oliver Twist have a little bit of that same kind of feel as, as Harry does in Harry Potter when Rin Rowling says she wrote him as an ordinary person on purpose. Like she, she didn't want him to have any extraordinary abilities. She wanted him to just be a regular kid in extraordinary circumstances, having to rise up. She wrote him in some ways, she says, as a vessel for the magical world. Right. And, um, and his challenge is that he has to become, um, he has to rise up to become part of this extraordinary vocation he's called to, called to be a part of. With Anne, it's the opposite, right? Like she's, she is in, in spite of the fact that she's in a beautiful, a naturally beautiful place, um, which you alluded to, David, um, she lives in a very ordinary village, right? She's an extraordinary person put into, written into an ordinary life filled with prosaic mundane kind of people who don't have big imaginations like she does. And she changes them and they change her. And that's the story. And, um, but with Oliver Twist, he's kind of like a regular kid who's thrown into this situation that's too big for him. And he has to figure that out. And mm. she is too big for her situation. <laughs> She's <laughs> so extraordinary. Like her and 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 she has to become um she 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 just needs so much to be loved, but she's a truly extraordinary person. So I think that in some ways that's what she she feels like she fills the room because she fills this ordinary village with her mm. extraordinary presence. Mm. There is a it, later on in that chapter I mentioned a couple pages later. There's a bit where um, it, there it, it says she came out of her reverie with a deep sigh and looked at him with the dreamy gaze of a soul that had been wandering afar, star led. Um, oh, Mister Cuthbert, she whispered, "This that place we came through, that white place. What was it?" Well, now you must mean the the avenue," said Matthew after a few moments' profound reflection. "It's a kind of pretty place." Pretty. Oh, pretty doesn't seem the right word to use, nor beautiful either. They don't go far enough. Oh, it was wonderful. Wonderful. It's the fine, it's the first thing I ever saw that couldn't be approved upon by imagination. It just satis it just satisfied me here. She put one hand on her breast. It made a queer, funny ache, and yet it was a pleasant ache. Did you ever have an ache like that, Mr. Cuthbert? Well, no, I just can't recall that I ever had. I have it lots of times, whenever I see anything royally beautiful. That to me is like seems like in many ways the sort of thesis core point of this book in some ways that she is the kind of person who has this ache going to a place where people don't have the ache to your point Heidi it's it, it, but it's because she sees in the mundanity of life things that they take as for granted that they take as mundane she sees as full of wonder right as right. royally beautiful and she has that ache. And then that she, it's almost like, uh, 
you know, she is, it's, it's almost like there's a story about her transferring that ache to other people, <laughs> or right. at least the effect of that ache, like her, the fact that she has that ache has effects on this whole community. Right. That's true. She always lives in this, like very close to the veil between heaven and earth. And she invites people there to be there with her, but she doesn't know how to put that into words and she's wounded and hurt it. Like there's just so much about her. That's she, I mean, she's just a remarkable character, but it isn't that she's this, um, wise guide into the eternal realms. Like she's a child and she's yeah, very right. childlike. And to Tim's point, she's also very flawed. She's vain. She's got a bad temper. Like she's a real person in the novel, uh, as well as being just purely delightful. Yeah. I'm in the depths of despair and yeah. she's very <laughs> dramatic and in a really real way, like a real child is, um, and there's just Marilla. Marilla's just a brilliant character. That's the perfect foil for Anne. And so, yeah, there's a lot more going on in this book on, in terms of the craft of it yeah. um, than I saw as a child. Because well, do I you just, want to, before we go, do you want to talk at all? Are there any structural things, any, any markers, anything like that that you think we should look out for? In this first section, we've obviously been introduced to our four key characters, mm-hmm. our sort of conflict character gets introduced before any of our three main characters and Rachel, you know, her, this gossipy woman who, you know, sees Matthew writing. Um, and then of course we get the two different perspectives of Matthew and Marilla and Anne getting thrust into their dynamics. So all that gets set up, but is there anything else that we should be looking out for that you think really speaks to the craftsmanship of, of uh, Montgomery? Right. I think that there's some pretty big um, themes of contrast, like contrast within this novel that make make it delightful in terms of the craft, especially thematically. Um, But I don't think it's, you know, I don't think it's crucial that kids see it. I really just think if you're, and I, and I want to do put that as caveat for parents who are listening along that like, just let your kids love the book, but the there's, When Montgomery is writing, she often, often the humor comes because there's Anne's kind of flighty, flights of fancy into the eternal forms, right? (laughs) Into this world beyond the world. And right next to Matthew making some like hilarious comment about grubs, right? Like you're (laughs) the one you just read. She says, did you ever get the thrill and that ache? And we're all thinking about C.S. Lewis and the inconsolable secrets if you're a Christian, you know, and, and then there's, well, yeah, when I see them grubs at the base of the cucumbers, right? And it's hilarious because it's this contrast and the contrast creates the humor, the contrast of the the mundane meeting the eternal. Mm. And that is funny. And it's also a little bit disorienting, I think, throughout the novel on purpose. And it is comic relief, but it's more than that. It's also a bit of a contemplation of how do those things come together? Because there are grubs in the the cucumber plants. And you do have to just be a farmer uh, and, and live an ordinary kind of life. And that's actually the thing that redeems Anne. Like that, that is the life in which she is brought back from the brink um, of being kind of lost forever. And, and so it's the grubs and the cucumbers that 
save her, right? But it's it's her flight into the world of imaginative delight that saves Matthew and Marilla and Rachel and bring and the other people of the village and Diana that kind of brings them from just sinking in and not looking up. Like they make her look down and she makes them look up. And that contrast creates the humor and I think creates the redemptive arc of the story. Um, so I don't know. That's, that's one of my answers, I guess. Did you, what did you see? You're always on the lookout for that stuff. Well, I mean, I have, uh, I mean, I'm on the lookout for it, but I had, like I said, I haven't read it in a long time mm-hmm. and especially with not without, with that in mind. So I don't have a lot to add to what you're saying there. I do. The contrast thing is really interesting. The sort of humorous balance between understatement and overstatement. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and then Marilla's kind of in the middle trying to negotiate that ground. I, I, that, that's a, I, I thoroughly enjoy that. I have, I may or may not have some children that fit each of these uh, categories. Right. Um, hey, Tim, hey. I was wondering before we go, if there was a particular uh, passage or moment that stood out to you that you, uh, that you really enjoyed from this first section, this first reading. Oh, Especially as a as a newcomer, the very first meeting when Anne um, kind of gets on the wagon to go home, I, I don't have a particular passage, but I remember kind of being a little bit on the edge of my seat because the name of the book is Anne of Green Gables, and I know that Matthew is um, he's living this prosaic life. Now here comes this redheaded ball of energy. Um. And she is expected to be a boy. Matthew is expecting to get a boy that can help him on a farm. And he's getting the farthest thing from that. He's getting Anne. And so just their opening exchanges, <laughs> that's what I really paid attention to. I didn't highlight a particular passage. Mm. Kylie, what, were you, were you going to say something? You look like you were going to say something. On, in my book, it's page 46. When she's talking about her name, she's, well, this is after, actually after she's talking about her name. This is when she's on the, she's with Marilla and they're going to White Sands um, to try to straighten out the mix up about the girl and the boy. And she has, uh, she says, Oh man, I I love chapter five, I just, right? Yes, Anne's history. Yeah. I just love everything about this chapter and about Marilla, who is just like the Duchess in Wonderland, and she's always giving her morals. Just love that. Um, it doesn't matter what a person's name is as long as he behaves yeah. himself, said Marilla, <laughs> feeling herself called upon to inculcate a good and useful moral. Well, I don't know. Anne looked thoughtful. I read in a book once that a rose by any other name would smell as sweet, but I've never been able to believe it. I don't believe a rose would be as nice if it was called a thistle or a skunk cabbage. I suppose my father could have been a good man, even if he had been called Jedediah, but I'm sure it would have been cross. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's hilarious, A. Eh? And I will tell you what, when I first heard about ontology and the connection between name and being in college, this was the very first passage I thought of. Mm. I'm sure. Like, mm. Because I just like the way that Montgomery takes these, she, her education was remarkable. And it's a lot like reading Woodhouse when there's all of these uh, references and allusions to literature, especially to poetry it's and like to the great hose. books. Yes. And even now there's times I read 
great books, poetry, things I've never read before. And I'm like, oh, well, that's an Anne or, oh, that's what Bertie Worcester said, right? So (laughs) that it it really works well in the comic flow here. But obviously that's a reference to Romeo and Juliet in which Shakespeare is contemplating ontology and the connection between name and being. And that's in Anne of Green Gables. And I absolutely believe the, because I read this when I was nine, (laughs) the... I, I believe in classical ontology a lot because of Anne and how much mm. she needed her name to be spelled with an E because it was prettier and that matters. Right. And, mm. um, and a, if it, a rose would not be, would not smell as good if it was called a skunk cabbage. <laughs> <laughs> well, as she says, muslin curtains give a house such an air. Mm-hmm. David? Actually a great line. It is. <laughs> Muslin curtains gives give a, a house such a great air. Such an air. Heidi, uh, what is tell can you say more about what an ontology is? Uh yes. The the branch of a philosophy that studies the nature of being, like the isness mm-hmm. of something. Mm-hmm. And so if uh could a rose be a rose if it was called something else? Could um, you know, would I be my, would I be me if I had a different name? How much do names and words express the inner beingness of something? Um, and that is a really good question, an unanswerable question, but we all have opinions about it. And mine is classically ontological, which says the name does matter to the being of something. How in, would in, you score her answer ontology. to your question? Yeah. What? I'm sorry. Would you say David? I said, how would you score her answer to your question? Her answer to that question? Like 10 out of 10. She nails it, of course. Because <laughs> she's a child. She answers it just out of her imaginative response. Like she she just has this ability to get to the heart of things. But, you know, actually, Tim, one time when you were in Colorado and actually did come down and visit Stop. me, Stop. Um, <laughs> uh, we were speaking at a Cersei conference together that was out here. And we went to the Axe in the Oak Whiskey House and sat outside. And you had a long conversation with, with Matt Bianco. Matthew Bianco, spurred on by the winds and fires of controversy that in the form of Matthew Kern. Um, and there's a very long My brother was causing chaos. I know. It was, Your brother is a fireplace poker. No, I it's don't really believe true. It. Yes. Um, he was just having the best time. But about this very question yeah. of, of, of whether or not how much a name or a word is tied to the object it signifies. And, um, and you are on the other side, you, you are arguing that words change over time, language changes over time, and that's perfectly fine. Uh, and there is a, a, a disconnect to a certain extent between the sign and the signified. And that's, I mean, that, that's an ongoing ontological question. And it's not mm-hmm. that Anne of Green Gables is about ontology. It's not. But I think what it is about is kind of the having childlike wonder, not just towards the little things of life, but towards the big things of life. And what does 
an imaginative child with a vibrant and rich inner life, how, how does she kind of instinctively and intuitively answer some of those big questions that are not just not intellectual, but real? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's the, we can go down this rabbit trail for a second. I'm thinking about that conversation that I was having with Matt. Um, I do think that there is a vague, um, what is the word you guys for? I just had it. It's, um, onomatopoetic. I think there is a vague onomatopoetic poetic connection between things and their word so that the word rose and the, and the, the, sorry, the thing, the rose itself and the skunk cabbage kind of can't go together for like what I would call vaguely automatopoetic reasons. Mm-hmm. But that's another story entirely. And I can't believe that I introduced this like subtopic <laughs> conversation into Anne of Green Cables. I now withdraw well. in fear and trembling. <laughs> yeah, we could argue about this for a while. It's a fun conversation. It's like a if you're with the right crowd, it's a great party topic. Yeah, some people get a little mad about it though. Like so raging about it. Yeah, exactly. Oh, so I see. Rage, rage, rage. It makes for a fun party in your. Is, is well, I, people care about the thing they're talking about, and they're not talking about the weather or <laughs> give them a couple you know, tobacco old fashions, and they have opinions about. Totally. Totally. Yep. <laughs> That's why you open a whiskey distillery, right? To talk about ontology, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it the subtitle of your whiskey manufacturing company? Sharing stories one drink at a time actually is. Yep. So ontologist. Someone yeah. should make a whiskey <laughs> distillery just called the ontologist. The whiskey ontologists. It's actually a great idea. I like that a lot. <laughs> You'd have too many misorders. Uh, I have a whiskey oncology. <laughs> You can have a character, you can have a cocktail called the Depths of Despair. Oh, that's such a good idea. The Lake of Shining Waters. <laughs> oh, do you guys want to hear some of the things? I tried to remember them and I can only remember a couple. I went and I named the geography around my grandmother's house after. When you were a kid? Yeah, after eating Anne no Green kidding. Gables. Yes. So, and they don't make any sense. Like I was laughing at them because I was jotting them down before the recording. And, um, so my grandmother lived, um, in, on like seven acres of really beautiful land in Northern California in the Sierra Madres. And, um, so on her land, there was this little pond and it had a fallen log over it. And I named the pond, the Lake of Hidden Mists, (sighs) which doesn't make any sense because if they were hidden, you wouldn't be able to see them (laughs) um, (laughs) and then the fallen log i called the maiden's misty throne and lots of mist there was so much mist i think i do remember it was a a fall day we went there every thanksgiving so i remember like getting lost in the woods and getting you know having all of these thoughts i think i probably wrote a poem um and then i called the woods the windy windy woods nice and I also like the word maiden because I did that. She had this honeysuckle growing like uh, all over the side of 
her trailer <laughs> and I called it the maiden's bower and I hid out behind there um, and wrote in my little journal and her wind times I called the be- the bells of far off fairyland. <laughs> Oh my goodness. I was so this into so this. Like, terrific. Yes. And I was just like, everything needs a name. It all, like, this. So, this, I, I was Is in there any way that you could draw kind of a topographical map of your <laughs> like, place along with the, your labels hmm. and post it on the Facebook page? Drawing. Like, hmm. like the <laughs> one from, Lucy, Lucy from do it? The Hundred Acre Wood. Right. Yes. Yeah, so I'll ask Lucy to do it because I am good okay. at other things. So. <laughs> <laughs> Naming. Oh, I'm not even good at that. Like, like of hidden mists. That's no. That's, it doesn't make any sense. Windy Wildwood is pretty good, or whatever. Windy Wildwood is wonderful yeah. and a little bit wistful. Yeah. Yes. Wistful you... Windy Wildwood. Yeah. So. I wandered in the Windy Wildwood a little wistfully one Wednesday. What? <laughs> wow. 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 <laughs> good job, David. Like David is the soul of the poet. It's true. <laughs> Wondering where wine <laughs> oh, even better derived from <laughs> derived from wondering where one derived from that's great. <laughs> I'll never remember that sentence again ever. No. It's, it's just gone. It's gone. Like her <laughs> except that there's that a had, except that there's a recording that has it. That's true. Mm-hmm. There you go. Mm-hmm. Well, before we go, um, I want to talk about uh, Matthew. Um. Matthew, for strangely, is one of the the um, characters that I remember a lot from hmm. books and movies growing up, and I think maybe there's this this sort of steadiness about him throughout the story and the way he and Anne sort of have a bond. And weirdly, well, actually, it's not weird; just interestingly, I don't know. <laughs> Factually, when uh, when Lydia was born, she's a little over one now. I, when I finally had a daughter. I, for whatever reason, their relationship, even though he's not her, you know, biological father, their relationship came to mind. I mean, maybe even when we were in the hospital and I had this sort of, I don't want to say sentimental, but this sort of nostalgic, uh, wistful, <laughs> uh, memory of their relationship, mostly as it shows up in the, in the TV series, admittedly, but you know, their conversations they have and the way they talk to each other. And there was something aspirational about that. So for me, he's a, um, a very, uh, he's a great character. He's a meaningful character for me. Um, maybe it's just because he's a man in a story about primarily about women. Although Gilbert Blythe is obviously a, a boy, but like there's something aspirational about him as a man. Um, he's kind of stoic and quiet, but you know, uh, uh, well-tempered and sort of steady, um, which now that I think about it, are probably none of those things are probably things that were descriptive of me as a 12 year old. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but did, did, um, d- what was your impressions of him at, at, when you were a young girl? So obviously I'm talking to Heidi here. Um, what were your impressions of Matthew? Um, all the books on my shelf just fell over right when I said that. Seriously? Um, yeah. So you can answer the question now while I while restore them to their your, proper yeah. balance. Yeah. Huh. Um, yeah. So Matthew's the first person to ever love Anne. And I mean, she was loved by her mm. parents, but they died when she was three months old. And Matthew yeah. like immediately loves her. And there's, mm. I, I yeah. think that that is so healing to her 
from the very beginning. And mm. Marilla, she needs Marilla because she is going to go like float off into the stratosphere without some kind of anchoring to the real world. And that's Marilla. Um, but her, she needed, I think from a craftsman's point of view, there had to be somebody in the story to just kind of love and, and accept her for who she is and to find her purely delightful and to accept mm. her. And, and that was exactly Matthew. the word that just popped into my head as he finds her delightful. Yes. And that's, that's Matt who actually wants to just give her to, to satisfy her needs and to give her what she wants, not just to improve her. And, and, and that's, that's Matthew. And so they, they have this very special bond and you probably will have it with Lydia. Scott has it with Lucy. I remember one time when Lucy was about four and she was naughty and I was disciplining her and she was crying and Scott is like standing in the corner, like visibly shaken, not shaking, but mm. like shaken on his face. And he's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, I have to discipline her. She was very disobedient. Mm. I don't remember what she had done. And he was like, but she's crying. <laughs> like, yeah, that's what kids do when they're disciplined. But like, he just is like Matthew in that scenario. And mm. children need that. And the fact that he's so passive and passively accepting of her is probably one of the great healing forces of her life because of all that she's gone through. And I think we respond to that. Yeah. It doesn't take a lot for him to find her delightful. Like right away, he's, he's a little bit, he's unsure what to do, but he does the, he knows he does the kind of right thing. He knows he can't just leave her there. Right. And the second she steps into the wagon, he immediately starts to find her delightful. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's that line right at the end of the reading only be as good as he's talking to Marilla. You can have your own way, said Matthew reassuringly. Only be as good and kind to her as you can without spoiling her. I kind of think she's one of the sort you can do anything with if you only get her to love you. Mm-hmm. And then Marilla sniffs to express her contempt for Matthew's opinions concerning anything feminine and walked off to the dairy with the pails. <laughs> <laughs> but he's right that he recognizes that, you know, she needs to be loved. Mm-hmm. That that's the, you know, that she needs someone to love her and it doesn't. You know, it's kind of unconditional. It's not based mm-hmm. on what she can accomplish for him or the way she can help him, but because he finds right. her delightful. And, and he yeah. has no yeah. desire to fix her or improve her or make her better or reform her. And that, I mean, I, I, she absolutely needs Marilla, but she, Matthew is like the great healer for her. Okay. So of these three adult characters, I need to know, Tim. I'll ask yeah. you first. Rachel, Marilla, Matthew. Who do you most identify with? Oh, Matthew. Okay, and now you the... can't choose a man. You have to choose one of the two women. <sighs> oh, gosh. <laughs> Probably Rachel. I mean, this is like, this is, I'm a bachelor. My, I mean, I totally understand um, that kids need discipline and you know, like, well, like discipline when it is, you know, couched always in love. It's like, yeah, this is just what kids need. <laughs> and I also recognize like, I'm not the one who has to give it to them. You know, it's their parents <laughs> that do. And yeah. so you get to be Matthew. I get to be Matthew. What a gift. Yeah. <laughs> Are you still there? Hello? Uh, okay. Yeah, I think we're all yeah. there. 
We're okay. just having a moment of silence. We're all being Matthew right now. <laughs> all right. Well, we should probably wrap this up. So um, Heidi, any final thoughts? Oh, I have too many final thoughts. I'm going to start going off like Anne. And then in the Lake of Shine, I caught it in it. Like, so no. <laughs> and then I buried a copy of the book with my special notes that I didn't want anyone else to see. And I buried them in hopes that one day they would bloom into a magnificent tree that could be made into future books. That's so great. I love that idea. Okay. No. Does anybody else have any final thoughts? <laughs> I have a, I have a question that we could discuss maybe on some subsequent um, podcast. Yeah. Who do we think could survive and thrive in the other's world? Anne in Holden Caulfield's world, Holden in the world that Anne is now in. Good question. Who would end up surviving and thriving? We should more. think about that as we go, because I'd be very interested. Cause there's one question like at the beginning, who's more likely to survive. And then given the things they run into, who's more likely to survive based on those things they run into. So at the end of uh-huh. the book, there's a different, it might be a different answer. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. It would be a weird question if we hadn't just read Catch on the Rye, but given that we did, it's a good question. It's such a contrast. <laughs> like, such a such contrast. A contrast. It might be a fun question also to ask of, um, Oliver Twist in Anne's world and Anne in Oliver's world. But because we just read Catcher in the Rye and because there's such stark differences between the characters and settings, um, it might be fun to switch Holden and Anne and like imagine which one would thrive. Well, and importantly, Anne has basically just been adopted out of Oliver Twist's world. Yeah, 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 yeah. She's exactly. been, she has been um, saved from that. So, yeah. I think that's kind of one of the crucial in some ways. I wonder if Montgomery was responding to the sort of that sort of um, body of literature mm-hmm. that is the common orphan story, whether it's the Dickens stories or I don't know, Huckleberry Finn or any number of other stories where, you know, she has another series. Have you read it? The Emily series? I ha- no, I haven't read it. So it's much darker than Anne. Um, and the, which the, did she write first? Anne. And the heroine is much more um, impacted emotionally by the sadness in her life. And there's she's also a writer in Emily, the Emily series. And and there's this really interesting process that Emily goes through as she's learning to be a writer in which she has one teacher who has greatly influenced her through the romantics. And, um, and she starts writing an imitation of the romantics and then she's challenged not to, like she's rejected from publication because her books are too happy basically. Um, and she's encouraged to write realistically and she refuses, um, because she says she's that realism in she says realism isn't actually realism. Um, it's just a celebration of the darker aspects of humanity and that Hmm. the romantic ideal is actually the true intent for human, the human pilgrimage. Um, and so it's a much, there's this meta contemplation about writing and narrative within these novels. Um, it's a really interesting contrast between the two series. Uh, and part of it is, I mean, d- deals directly with what you just said. So I'm sure that she's 
writing a romantic heroine with the capital R sense and the little R sense intentionally in Anne. Mm. Yeah, we have to definitely talk about romanticism. I was going to bring mm. it up this week and then I saved yeah. it because I want to talk about it in the future. Um, I, I think also, I think she might be making fun of it. A little bit, yes. <laughs> so, yeah. um, all right. Well, Tim, we'll let you talk more next week. <laughs> I'm happy to have you guys talk more. Maybe I'm at the beginning of the learning curve about Anne of Green Gables. Well, you got to bring your questions, and then we can uh, we can let Heidi answer your questions for you. <laughs> That's a deal. That's a deal. Because <laughs> it turns out we have a uh, Lucy Mon Montgomery expert on the on the podcast. Um, Heidi, how many times have you read Little Women? Well, I think pro- less than five, probably three times. Okay. So less times than a hundred then. <laughs> For real. Yes. Because I was too busy reading Anne of, Anne, yeah, yeah, you, and yeah. Anne of the Island and Anne of Avonlea and all the Anne's. Yeah. Right. She went a lot of places. Yeah. All right. Well, um, I want to remind people um, about our uh, bookshop.org page. If you are looking for books and you want to also support the show, head over to bookshop.org slash close reads because uh, they will so not only support the show through a great affiliate program, but also they support local booksellers in your area and all around the country. When you buy a book there, they will connect you with um, local booksellers in the area if you want to opt into that. And then again, it um, offers anywhere from 10 to 25% of that sale to close reads uh, and local booksellers. So it's a great program. It's an alternative to Amazon. I know not everybody can uh, quit using Amazon when they buy books, but if you can, uh, if you want to look into this option, it's it's uh, good for almost everybody involved. And uh, again, it is bookshop.org slash close reads if you want to learn more about that. All right. With that, for Heidi White and for Tim McIntosh, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. And we'll be back next week with another episode for you. And in the meantime, happy reading. Thank you.